Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Slate's Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And by Netflix, presenting Season 3 of its original series, House of Cards, about ruthless D.C. power couple Frank and Claire Underwood, starring Golden Globe winner Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright. All episodes are available on Friday, February 27th. Welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for February 20th, 2015, the Does President Obama Love America edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm here in Washington, D.C. John Dickerson of Slate and CBS News is next to me. John's just getting a call from CBS News, even as we speak. So John will not even say hello. Emily Bazelon. No, CBS News has to wait a moment because John doesn't want to take that uh, that's right that's Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, the newly relaunched New York Times Magazine. Emily, congratulations on newly relaunching your magazine. Hey, I feel like I deserve the tiniest shred of credit, but it is exciting. Thank you. Do you have any pieces in the newly relaunched New York Times Magazine? No, I don't. That's why I get a tiny, tiny shred of credit just merely for cheering on everyone else. Wow. All right. On this week's GabFest, a federal judge says President Obama's immigration executive order is illegal and stops it in its tracks. Then Scott Walker, governor of Wisconsin, has made a canny, or is it terrible, attack on the public universities of his home state. What is he trying to accomplish with that? And then the Republican foreign policy assault on President Obama. Jeb Bush lays out his foreign policy this week, vaguely. And uh, Rudy Giuliani says the president doesn't love America. We will test that hypothesis. We'll find out if he loves America or not. And then we'll have cocktail chatter, of course. And in Slate Plus, what you have been waiting for are Oscar predictions. We will make our Oscar predictions. A federal judge in Brownsville, Texas, has declared illegal something. Emily will explain the exact technical term. President Obama's executive order on immigration, which would have allowed certain undocumented immigrants to remain in the country and to get work permits. Judge, how do you say his last name? Hanan? I don't know. Hanan? Hanan Hanan, who's a quite conservative judge, says that uh, the president's executive action essentially wrote new law and, and was thus an overbroad use of executive power. The administration announced this week that it's going to put on hold its plan to start ex- accepting applications for these, this, its new program, but is presumably going to appeal the, the ruling. Emily, start us out with some legalese, some legal mumbo-jumbo. Walk us through what the judge did, how he justified it, and what the next steps are. This is a pretty infuriating ruling because it is clear that what President Obama is doing falls within the boundaries of executive power. Now, we can argue oh, about whether it's a good really? idea. Oh, my God. Really? Wait, that was like yes. – that's a really broad statement. It was <laughs> yeah. a, he did well, something – I mean I support what he did, but it's 
you know, he kind of did what he did because Congress refused to act. Like he was waiting for congressional legislation to do this. So he said, I don't have congressional legislation. I'm just going to say I'm going to do it. So you can see why people might think that this was something that Congress ought to do, given that everyone had said before this was something Congress should do. Are you making a point about what ought to happen and what would be better lawmaking? Or are you making a point that what President Obama did was illegal because Congress didn't act? I am not making a point in either direction. I'm saying you could imagine as sort of a casual reader of politics, as I am, that the fact that the president takes this broad action, you would agree that it's a broad, sweeping action. I would agree that it is broad. It may, might cause certain people to think, gosh, this is a really expansive use of executive power. I wonder if it's legal. So like, rather than starting by asserting categorically that it's that it's legal. Can you explain to us why it's legal? Because it, fe- it feels to me like... Sure. Yeah. yeah. It feels to me like you began at the end. No, I didn't. I agree with you that it's expansive. And I think we could debate whether this is bad for democracy and for our separation of powers because President Obama's expanding the use of executive power. They don't actually think he went beyond what other presidents have done. But we could have that whole big debate about what should and ought to be. I was making a legal point. The reason that I think this deferring action on deporting people is legal is that presidents, prosecutors every single day exercise discretion about how to enforce the law. President Obama has enough money to deport about 400,000 people a year out of the millions of people who are eligible for deportation. He and other presidents have always made choices about how they do that. All he has done is said in advance, there are certain groups of people who we are going to make less of a priority. He said these people could still be deported. He wants immigration officials to proceed on a case-by-case basis. He was merely making a statement about priorities. That, it seems to me, is clearly legal. There are plenty of law professors, including conservative libertarian ones, who agree with that position. Would, would you agree? What, what if the president just, said the reverse? What if he'd said, I'm only going to deport people who are not criminals? Like all the criminals we're going to let stay in the country. We're going to, you know, everybody who's done nothing and who has like m- the most children, we're going to deport. Or if you, if say, or if you said, we're not going to, pro- we're only going to prosecute low, low level drug offenders, we're not going to prosecute murderers. You, but see, th- you're, you're leaving some out kind the of- wiggle room. If okay. he made any sort of categorical statement, now these people can definitively stay based on this group status and they get lots of benefits they wouldn't have gotten before, that would be a problem. It would certainly be a problem for this technical reason under the Administrative Procedures Act, which is actually the basis of Judge Hanen's ruling, which I will describe, talk more about if anyone can bear to listen in a moment. That would be a problem. But he did not do that. He is setting priorities like every other executive. But there are affirmative benefits being work permits, welfare without statutory authority. Yes, if they look at the case and they decide to qualify. Right. But do you qualify? But that's an affirmative benefit. That's not discretion whether to enforce something or not. You have the discretion whether to enforce or not, and then you grant if that discretion is exercised, then you grant this affirmative benefit, which means yeah, you're granting and it's an affirmative still case benefit. Case by case, that's my. I understand point. that, They're but not... my point is you're you're granting an affirmative benefit to a group that is. But it's only... not a group. She's saying. Well, it's but not it's a members group. of it's new members of a group. It's four, almost five million people. Uh, uh, no, that but are... it's not. But the, the theory is that it's every one of those four million cases will get individually examined. Yeah, but which that's is, that's maybe 
hokum. part of the discussion. That's no, but it's I mean, not that's... hokum. They actually do have to go through. People have to individually apply. This is not like me wave your magic wand amnesty. There is a process, right? They but go it's a benefit they wouldn't otherwise speaking. have gotten. It's a new benefit. It's not just well, I'm not going to go put no, you in jail. No, but individuals could have gotten that benefit. There, they had not the if they were. No, they had the discretion now. I mean, they even absent this, to allow do. certain people. But to wait, stay they had the, the discretion to grant the affirmative benefit or discretion to not deport. Hold on. Discretion to David's grant right. work permits now on a case by case basis. There can be special circumstances. And it happens all the said. time. So what, but in the, in this huge, but I mean, it, not in a huge class of people that were previously categorized as people who should leave. Okay, so remember, we're talking about a huge class of people being eligible, not necessarily receiving the right to stay or the benefits, right? So legally speaking, that matters. You may like sweep right by it because you think this is still an overreach of presidential power, but legally speaking, that matters. And the other thing is that in some ways, what we're arguing about is this funny idea that it's just fine for executives to use discretion in how they enforce the law. They just can't announce it ahead of time. And when you start thinking about that, it is not really a distinction that's worth anything. I mean, and think about how prosecutors do this all the time. Like, for example, this comes up with the federal government. Essentially, the government has, and we may think this is a bad idea, but they have said on college campuses, like, we're not going to go in and arrest anyone for marijuana violations. There are lots of ways in which the government... But I'm still hung up on the idea of you're getting a benefit that you wouldn't previously have been if the law was enforced at its maximum level, which we understand... they never enforced the law. I understand they can't, but my point is with the drug dealer analogy. Okay, fine. They're not going to go in and and get the drug dealer, but they then aren't allowing the drug dealer to go get some benefit that was previously denied to them. And that's well, sure. where they, I mean, you could play that one out. Like maybe but, I mean, the, that drug, is a the drug dealer is not in prison. And so but, then he gets to apply for like, I don't know, whatever, Social Security. It's just, yes, there are benefits attached but, to and not also, having law And also, John, they, do, they were it. able to, they are able to now with people who right. are undocumented, who are here in this country illegally to give those people affirmatively work permits if they, on particular cases for particular reasons. What President Obama has said is that we're going to now look more generously on a very broad group of people and 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 speed through their applications and let lots of them have But see, this. look more generously is a different construction than I'm too busy looking over here. That's a crucial distinction. One is we have a limited amount of resources and we must look where the most egregious cases are. What you've just said is look more generously, which is not I'm not looking at you. It's I'm affirmatively looking towards you and giving you benefits that you would not have been otherwise. But why does that matter to you, legally speaking? Like, what's the why are you? Because the president's on that? powers to exercise prosecutorial discretion are where the powers are limited. When you start granting new powers to people who previously in statute have been denied those things, that's where you get into the abuse of power problem. That's where you get into the stepping on what Congress is allowed to do problem, especially when you're contravening. I don't think that is a legal... It just seems to me like you're just talking about how you view the picture as opposed to the difference, right? So Obama could have said, we are going to make our priority to deport and detain People, criminal aliens, which certainly has been the way they have tried to act in the past, although in truth they have deported a whole lot of people calling them criminal aliens who in fact committed low-level crimes or their only crime was crossing the border illegally. But that is clearly their policy. What they have done in addition is to say to this, you know, four million or so people, 
come on down. We'll review your cases and think about whether you can get to stay. It's honestly, it's just codifying something that was happening anyway and has happened previously in different administrations. So part of this, what bothers me about this is that the legal kerfuffle is in a sense all about transparency. And it just seems wrong to me that that would create a legal dilemma for the president, aside from whether we think it's a good or bad idea for him to be exercising power in this broad way. I'm not sure it is all about transparency. I mean, at least based on the 140 some odd page ruling, I think the judge does make this distinction between discretion and the affirmative granting of rights. Now, he may be wrong, but he's not. Yeah, he's wrong. Well, he may be wrong, but that's not that doesn't have anything to do about transparency. He then makes a separate point about transparency that is its own thing. But I think you have to engage with whether this is an affirmative benefit and that creates a different class of power abuse here. And that seems to be where he's making part of his case. And he also makes the case about the reason that's important is he makes that narrow claim about whether this should have been left open for review as a, as in the normal notice way, DHC, the, the, the normal way uh, Homeland Security stuff is open to notice and comment, which is a different class than if they were making just sort of tinkering with their existing rules. Now, again, he may be wrong, but that's the grounds on which he makes part of his claim. Also, I think it is different when a president says, broadly speaking, to the public. Now, this isn't a legal question. It's a political question. When he says to a group of people in the public, he says, you are now okay. We're going to defer your deporting you. That's a public policy statement because the president said it out loud. I think there is a distinction between something you say out loud and something that just happens as a matter. Because we know the president, that's true because of the way his decision to not enforce DOMA. There was a public policy message that was sent publicly. It wasn't just like if he'd done it in quiet. Those aren't equivalent. Donovan being the Defense of Marriage Act. Right. Yes, I totally agree that politically speaking, these are different animals. It's just that legally speaking, I don't think that the president has done anything wrong. And I think that this ruling looks better than it is. So just to So why did he apart, suspend his why did they suspend the program because the federal such, judge such... ruled it to be again, you know, in violation of the Administrative Procedures Act, and they have to get that ruling overturned before they can do anything. Oh, they, they have can't, to. Yeah, they can't. I mean, I, well, I guess they could have been like. I mean, this relates sort of to that discussion we were having about um, one federal judge ruling in Alabama last week. I guess they could have been like, it's just you and we're going to do it outside of your jurisdiction in Texas. But they were named as a party in this lawsuit. So they are bound by this um, by this ruling and they have to get it overturned before they can get. Yeah, they know they are stuck with this until a higher court changes it. I just want to get into the nitty gritty for one second here. This is not a ruling, Judge Hanen's ruling, that's based on constitution. It's not about separation of powers. He made, as John was saying, this the judge, a narrower claim that the Obama order is in violation of what's called the Administrative Procedure Act, the basis of administrative modern American law, which like – Every Well, maybe not everyone, but most law students take a course called administrative law, and what you do is you study the APA and the way in which it's been applied. And one of the key questions in the Administrative Procedure Act is whether this government agency is imposing a new mandate on the public. If that's what you're doing, then you have to seek notice and comment. But, you know, the idea that this order is imposing a new mandate on the country, on the public, just seems like a very strange way to think about what deferring action on this group of immigrants 
case by case actually accomplishes. And so I was I'm going to rely here on Cass Sunstein, who had a nice, clear column about this. That's why the judge is probably wrong about the APA, because the government was not imposing a new mandate on the country. And I expect that this ruling will be overturned. There's a Supreme Court ruling from just a few years ago, um, which was five to three with Justice Kagan sitting out. So you can really think of it probably as six to three in favor of the government. And first of all, immigration is an area in which the executive branch has tremendous sway. It just is the purview of the president, not of the states to be doing no you, you misstate that it is not the executive branch that has sway it is the federal government has sway the federal government but in particular the president because in previous cases we've had questions about this this issue of whether congress not acting means the president can do anything and the court has said no the president can actually act on his or her own so that is going to be really important here and i expect if this goes up that that will be the result. The question is, like, how long does it take? What's the process for that? And does it mean that all these people don't get the relief that, you know, they were promised? John, doesn't this all set up a kind of face-saving compromise for everyone regarding Department of Homeland Security funding, which so the Republicans had tied themselves to the mast about it and saying they were not going to fund DHS unless mm-hmm. this program was was taken out of it? And now that this program has been taken out of it for the moment, they can then say, OK, we're going to fund DHS President Obama suspended the program. Then once it's legally reinstated, the president can go ahead and do it and everyone is gets to be happy and the Republicans can again be outraged that right. the president is, is doing this. Right. I mean, if you were to think this through reasonably, you would say that the Republicans who heralded the judge's ruling and say, see, the courts agree with us, this was an overreach, would then, having given all that power to the courts for its wise decision, would then let the courts do their thing and will now go fund DHS and The two are separate. We no longer – we, Congress, no longer have to get in the way. This would, as you say, take a big problem off the hands of Republican leaders who were facing a mini version of the government shutdown before in practical effect closing down or shutting down the funding stream to DHS wouldn't cripple DHS much. I think about 83 percent of its operations are considered essential and therefore would continue without a funding stream. And in fact, the program uh, that would keep these deportations from happening and and affirmatively grant these privileges to the non-deported would all still exist and continue and go forward because it's funded with fees, which Congress doesn't have control over. However, as a symbolic measure, there are still a portion of the Republican conference in the House in particular who wants to really show their constituents that they're going to beat back the president's overreach here. And so the Republican leaders do still have a problem. Smaller group that is creating the problem, but bigger problem because the rational, normal, non-politically obsessed person would look at this and say, wait a minute, the courts are dealing with this. This doesn't really have anything to do with DHS. You couldn't, by the measure you're taking, stop the program itself which has now been stopped by the courts. So this is like foolishness, and we elected you all and put you in power to go do things that are important, and this seems pretty far down the lane. And oh, by the way, the whole reason we're in this pickle, you can agree that the president overreached and recognize that the reason he was forced to do this and the reason the courts are being forced to do this is because leaders in Congress, and in this case it is the Republicans, have totally abdicated their responsibility to do their job on immigration. The Senate passed a bipartisan bill in which Republicans and Democrats joined together to pass something, and the House punted because they didn't want to have an internal fight during an election year. It's a total abdication on the part of the Republican leadership, both in the past and now in the present. I mean, there's just no way around that. Well said. I just want to just register. This is my public service announcement I make every time we talk about executive power. I am all for the president doing what he did. I think it's necessary for 
the public good. I think this having this shadow world of of undocumented people who can't work and don't have any security is terrible for the country and and particularly terrible for these people who are mostly have are here to work hard and and do right by their families. That said, like this is a function. This is a product of of a terribly dysfunctional government where you have a Congress that cannot act and a court system that is terribly politicized. And then you have an executive who, who, because there's this vacuum, has moved into it with just massive exertion of, of executive power. And while you may like it when President Obama does, you probably do. Like, w- this is something that we're all going to have to live with when maybe there's a president you, you're less keen on. And it just, I'm not saying that President Obama did anything wrong. I'm just saying, like, the political system is so screwed up that we reach the stage and we're giving or letting too much power flow to the executive and we are going to regret it. It's going to be terrible. And you are going to get the last word. You're there. We're going to be a few years down the road. If we're not, if we're still, if we're still creaking around and anyone will still listen to us, you're going to get to say, I told you so. Absolutely. Yes, when we have our dictator our dictator in about 12 years. <laughs> Let's hear from our first sponsor this week, which is Stamps.com. Getting your mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation, sort of like what Congress is in these days, what the Washington is in. Going to the post office takes up valuable time. Leasing a postage meter is expensive. It has multi-year commitments and hidden fees. Luckily, there is a better way, which is Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk using your own computer and printer. You can even get special postage discounts you won't find at the post office. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter at just a fraction of the cost. You can save up to 80% compared to a postage meter, and you'll avoid time-consuming trips to the post office. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST and get the special offer, no-risk trial, and a bonus offer, which gets you a free scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, arguably the front runner for the 2016 GOP presidential nomination, made a canny move this week, introducing a budget that cut Wisconsin higher education uh, by more than $100 million. It also backhandedly, perhaps inadvertently, probably not inadvertently, backhandedly attacked a cherished notion of Wisconsin, something called the Wisconsin Idea, which I had never heard of until this week. But the Wisconsin Idea is that Higher education is part of a search for truth to improve the human condition, to help government, help public policy, to serve the the benefit of the people. And Walker stripped out the Wisconsin idea from the charter of the University of Wisconsin and replaced it with something about the the purpose of the University of Wisconsin is to uh, have a well-trained workforce. So clearly, the University of Wisconsin-Madison is, a, is one of the great treasures of higher education. It's, it's a tremendous university, an anchor of that city and that state. But, John, is what Walker – is what he's doing kind of an outrage to the public and an outrage to the state of Wisconsin, both in the budget and then this, this initial move to kind of change the ideology of the university, which he stepped back. He, he didn't – he left the Wisconsin idea within the charter after being criticized. Wait, so is the question, is this a political move or is it an outrage or where do we put it on the scale? Of, yeah, or is it, no, is it reasonable I, public policy yeah, well, or is it's it totally, politics? Uh, is I it, don't know. Is it, I think a couple of things. One, in saying he's the front runner, you are not separating yourself from other people, but it's, 
so I'm not criticizing you, but it is crazy for people to call him the front runner. Nobody's the front runner in the Republican field right now. Walker, I'm is trying even... to make a rhetorical point. No, I know John, you are. I know you are. To pump up. This I, know, segment. I know. I know. I know. People are like, why are we talking about Wisconsin college? Why are we talking about Beloit College? This is no, no. It's important here. It's important here for a couple of reasons because Walker doesn't need to be the front runner in the Republican Party nominating contest to be playing an influential role in Republican politics because. He did a version of this with his union collective bargaining attack when he first came into office. And so what and he was successful in beating back the power of the public sector unions and therefore has been a model for other states and other Republicans, both in specifics, but also in a general sense, which is you do something bold and stick to your guns and you're able to get through on the other side of it. Even though they try to recall you, you'll be the first governor to successfully battle back a recall. So even if you weren't a nominee uh, and even if you weren't the front runner, which he's not, he'd still be an important thing. And so this has that's why this is important outside of Wisconsin. But this is totally in keeping with his view of the world, which is cut the amount of money, but give greater autonomy, which is what he is arguing he is doing, that he is giving Wisconsin, uh, University of Wisconsin educators more authority to move their money around. And that if you trade money for authority, you can get more efficient services. And he did this when he was the county executive in Milwaukee. What I wonder about really, though, is if it's going to, if it has this big, powerful vector into the 2016 race. I don't think it does in the same way the union fight did. College education is different than secondary education. Obviously, Common Core is a huge issue in Republican and conservative circles, but that isn't what this is. This is a budget fight. While it may be an attempt by Walker to get noticed beyond his own state, I'm skeptical about the um, utility of it in the end. And also... There's no utility, you don't think, in him, in him making liberals get angry at him and get all self-righteous and smug? And- yeah, I, I think it's. I think that's right. I think it's a way to refresh his underlying image. So, you know, if you were known for doing A, you'll do mini A to revive the glory of underlying A. Right. So, in other words, mini A isn't what people are... You're not going to hear, I don't think, people going, you know, and he's really taking it to the university. They'll just say he's a fighter. Right. And they will feel that way and they'll talk about the unions, but they will have been reminded of all that by his current fight. I think that all I that find tracks. this so sad. I mean, maybe, I guess you might be right, pragmatically speaking, but w- remind me why attacking public universities and the idea that Wisconsin has that higher education is a sh- common good. Remind me why that is like a way to score a partisan points. It just seems honestly just it makes me sorrowful that that that, that is how he wants to remind people what a fighter. He no, is. I think the way. Well, I'll, I'll give you the best possible case. I think the best possible case is what he wants to let people know is that in times of fiscal tightening and in times of uh, wanting to shrink government, which is what all Republicans want to do, you can shrink government, but then also um, promote free market ideas, which is to say, give people authority. Don't just give them money, but give them give the university authority. So he would argue, I'm doing what I have to do, which is cut the budget, but I'm giving them more authority, which those of us who believe in liberty believe will make them more efficient and not don't hamstring them with all these rules and regulations. Let them be more efficient. And by dint of their own entrepreneurial activity, they will shrink costs, create better education. And so it's a win for everybody. That's and the also, way Emily, I think but that there is a... But he's backed off of what? Well, but I also think there's a, there is a very long and, and semi-honorable tradition of this in American politics. The, it's not as though Scott Walker is the first person to to play 
this anti-egghead card if if he's playing it. I mean, this is this. Go, I mean, Spiro Agnew. It was constantly, you know. I think it's a bad sign when you're a progenitor, a Spiro Agnew. Go ahead. But it's a form of politics. It's a form of populism that has some play for the, I think the reasons that John talked about. And I don't think he'll go far with this because almost every state, in almost every state, the the entire political elite and apparatus consists of people who ha- who are anchored in the flagship state universities of those that state. So in Texas, it's Texas A&M and, and UT Austin, you know, provides a lot of the political class. And, you know, in Michigan, it's the University of Michigan and Pennsylvania, Penn State has this function. So it's these the state universities, Alabama, Ole Miss, I mean, Trent, what was it? Trent Lott was like an Ole Miss cheerleader, right? So the California system. The California system. And these, they, these things are incredibly important to state not just to state identity, but to the state identity of the people who are the leaders of the state. That's where these networks are formed. You know, people are in their fraternities, they're in their groups there, they're in the student government there, and that that becomes the mesh that forms the 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 support system for the entire state political apparatus. So I don't think he'll go far with this, but it's a very I think as a rhetorical strategy, it's not at all bad. And also I would say I think there's there are very legitimate questions to ask about public higher education and its purpose, and which I think you might want to separate Madison, which is a, an elite research institution at the highest level, from some of the smaller colleges and universities through the system, which may serve a different purpose. People, as Catherine Rampell pointed out in a column in the Washington Post, people go to college increasingly because they want to improve their workplace prospects, because they want to gain specific, useful information. Not everyone goes to college for a liberal arts education. And, totally. And is it, I and love is it Catherine wrong? Rampel, but what's the it, ramification of that, that like it's just fine to cut the Madison budget because the, it wasn't that's a going bunch after of the Madison. Well, no, it's saying it's saying that you can. It's saying that to ask questions about the purpose of higher education is a perfectly reasonable exercise to do, and to and also to say maybe we don't want to concentrate on the liberal arts at our smaller universities. That instead, maybe we need better engineering programs at these schools, or better accounting programs, or whatever it is. That seems totally reasonable. But is that what Walker was doing? There's an undercurrent of it. I don't know if it is what he's doing, but it's, I don't it's, think he articulated that. That would well, be that's what the, the that's work, what the idea of changing the Wisconsin idea was to yes. make it more focused on almost not vocational, but to get it make it more utilitarian and not I so eggheady ish. He would Scott Walker would be the first president without a college degree since Harry Truman. I think I read that. Does that mean anything? Do we think that matters? I mean, I, I think, think it's kind it of great just yeah, because it, it opens up the vistas of possibility and not everybody needs to go to college, even though most people are better off when they do. And my own children cannot listen to me just talk about not going. That's a good thing. I think it helps him more than hurts unless, you know, that wouldn't have helped, say, George W. Bush. You know, somebody who's already got the rap. would have just like a big loser. <laughs> yeah, somebody who's already got the rap against you that you're uh, like that you're just not so bright. And you come from a family in which everyone else went to an Ivy League institution. You right. would just look like right. you couldn't make it. But I agree with you. Someone who didn't go because they were working, which is true about Walker, seems, you know, it seems like he educated himself. Yeah. Good for him. And he did go for most of college. He just didn't yeah. finish it. It's a, I, I think I read also that Rand Paul weirdly has, a, has an MD but not a, a, a BA. Not a BA. Yeah, yeah. But he has a BS because he said he had a, a biology degree, which he doesn't have. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, he claimed the degree, which he didn't get? Yeah. Whoops. Yeah. I didn't hear that. Yeah, I don't see how you can uh, get into medical school without having to be I love that. 
I guess I love that. I don't know if I'd love that in my doctor. I guess I would if you got through. Why would through. you care? Why would you care when doctor? I want, to have read, I want them to have read the classics. I want them to have a good, well-rounded liberal arts education. In Europe, some, you go, actually, you we go just, right but it probably would make them better with patients, right, if they'd read some books. Well, this is my father's claim. My father, who's a doctor and researcher, he's dismayed by the fact that he gets all these these people who come into his lab. I mean, I guess he's retired now, but in, in his later years... The, all these MD PhDs who'd never read a book besides the textbooks that they had to read, and he think you know he's a great believer that you know you need the unified that you need to be the unified person. You need to know the culture and the science. I don't know, maybe maybe so. I cannot believe we have not been sponsored by this sponsor before, but the GabFest is sponsored this week by Netflix, which is presenting season three of its original series House of Cards. All episodes of the new season are available on Friday, February twenty seventh. I do not need to explain to you, GabFest listeners, what House of Cards is, but I'm going to because that is my responsibility because I have to speak up for the sponsor who has you know, been giving us great art and great entertainment. House of Cards is the acclaimed political thriller from executive producer David Fincher. It stars Golden Globe winner Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright as the ruthless couple Frank and Claire Underwood. Now in the power seat of DC politics, the Underwoods must watch their backs as allies and enemies from the past can bring everything crashing down around them. You can stream seasons one and two of House of Cards right now on Netflix, and all episodes of season three will be available on Friday, February 27th, only on Netflix. I strongly urge you to watch it. I will be watching that in late February and early March. One of the developing themes of the 2016 race is President Obama is a disastrous foreign policy. President uh, Jeb Bush made his first foray into foreign policy. Foray into foreign policy. Foreign into it's foray a foray, policy. It's a foray foreign. Foray policy. It's a foreign foray. foray. Uh, he had a major speech about his views on the world. It was, it was pretty anodyne, pretty vague, as John will tell us in a second. He's for stronger defense. Big surprise there. He wants to project more power abroad. Strength, again, another word, strength. No quarter with Iran. He's being advised by some of the people who used to advise his father and President Reagan and his brother, too, uh, which, you know, when you hear Super. the words, you hear the words Paul Wolfowitz, you're just like, oh, you want to run really? For the hills. Oh, my gosh. Then sort of separately, this is I, I, I'm not exactly sure why I want to connect these two, but I'm going to try at a separate event for Scott Walker, a private event for Scott Walker. Uh, Rudy Giuliani told a bunch of GOP fat cat fundraisers and, and heavy hitters that President Obama does not love America and that he was not raised the way you and I were raised. So first, let's start with that. Emily, does President Obama love America? Yes or no? Yes or no? Yes or no? He loves America. We all love America. I mean, come on. That's such a low blow, Rudy Giuliani. Disagree with him. Say that he's wrong. You know, call him out for not calling ISIS a bunch of Muslim extremists if you want. But I mean, he did that as well. I I know. I was more sympathetic to that or at least more interested in it. I just think that questioning the basic patriotism of the president is really should be beneath anyone, even Rudy Giuliani. And I also think it's like kind of a just bad thing to do in the world to for other for people abroad to think that that's like something that, you know, prominent Americans are wondering about. John, do you, what do you think undergirds this line of attack? First of all, do you think this is something that a lot of conservatives and Republicans actually believe about the president and they, they that it galls them in the way that it clearly galls Giuliani? Or do you think this is just an expression of id from, a, from an irritable man? Hmm. And is it racist also? 
Like to me, I hear sort of a, like a subtone of racism because you taught, he cites all the presidents who he disagrees with, like Jimmy Carter, for God's sake, I think, you know, but you never had any doubt that they loved America. And like, I just feel like there well, the is, thing an, of, like, there he is wasn't a race raised element. The raised the way you, you and I were raised. Right. 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 That's why. Yes. Right. Now, um, there are obviously people who have a racist reaction to the president. There are people who have a reaction to him as the other, which is a probably a version of racism, but also then gets you into people who are predisposed to not like something that is unfamiliar to them and their lives. And there's probably more of that now since we all, as Americans, are living closer and surrounding ourselves with people who are more like us. So that's so you got those two strains. Then you've got a third strain, which is the search for the fundamental flaw in Obama, which and this they did. People did this with Bush as well. Like this is the one thing you have to know about him. So remember when when Newt Gingrich used to quote Dinesh D'Souza, I believe his theory about like it was the colonial experience of Obama's father that explained why he doesn't love America. Like there is this underlying crack in Obama that makes him ineffective. And so it's what people used to say, a version about it, but about Bush was that he was a religious nut, that it's like he all thinks God, you know, he thinks God is telling him what to do. And so that's why he does all these crazy things, because he just like only cares about God. Or the other was like, he's a big dummy. So he doesn't understand what's going on. And Cheney's just running things like everybody's always searching for the one like true theory that just tells you everything. And the great thing about the one true theory that tells you everything is it not only demolishes the person you're trying to demolish, but then you have all kinds of branch theories, right? You got all kinds of that you can create just out a whole cloth, but they have a feeling of validity because you've got the one truth at the middle of it. So I think there's a lot of that in what Giuliani was trying to do. And then I think there's just Giuliani is at that stage in his career where he's got nothing to lose. He's used to going into rooms and saying whatever he wants and being applauded for it. And he's lost either whatever portion of public responsibility he felt he ever had, or he is just one of those who are in what's unfortunately an increasingly large category of public officials who just have forgotten their responsibility as public officials and the kinds of things that they should and shouldn't say about other public officials, about other people, and about the president of the United States. It's an extraordinary thing when you go back and read and look at the political campaigns before we were in the stupid age that we're in now. In 1980, in the Republican debate in Manchester, if there's seven Republican candidates, and they're asked about Carter's sitting Treasury Secretary, who was head of a company that it had been found out was paying billions of dollars in bribes. All of the candidates, I think except for Dole, who said maybe there should be an investigation, said it's not, it's not a big deal. It's like it's out of bounds. It has nothing to do with what we're here talking about. That seems inbounds what? to me. <laughs> well, no, no, no. He was, he was the... But, <laughs> He was he was okay. So maybe you think it's inbound, but my Seems point like is too far my in the point other is, direction. My point is that, and Howard Baker said Chappaquiddick was not worth discussing what? or talking about. So also I, within bounds. My point is my point is that if everything is in bounds, if you can claim moral failings based on whatever you want. There was a period where people said, "Look, we're going to talk about what you want to do for the country and whether that has merit." in and of itself, and whether our national security is threatened by the things you believe or not. And there's plenty to talk about on the specifics of things without having to search for some theory that you can then use to totally undermine what they do. But the problem with this is not that 
the problem is this is not that it's about Obama's character. It's that it's just made up and has no basis in reality. Chappaquiddick was a real event where where Ted Kennedy a horrible like, real caused event. the death of a of a woman. Like uh, why? My, my why, point why is, is not, that not no, my point is not why to is that not something my, that's relevant. That's not my, no, 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 no. My point is there was a period in politics where you couldn't even say what Giuliani said because public officials didn't talk about that kind of stuff. They said there's enough to talk about in, in terms of what actual politicians say and believe and support in terms of actual public policy. Because once you move into this realm, once you start splitting hairs about whether personal behavior or personal attributes or personal background is the thing that explains a politician, once you move into that territory, this ultimately happens. My point is you could never have even said this 20, 30 years ago and have people take you seriously. And I'm just saying as a, as a development, I'm not making a value statement. I'm just saying this is what is this has what is what has changed in the way politics is is practiced now. Emily, do you think this this line of attack will continue? Is this going to be red meat for certain class of, of Republican primary voters or is this just, you know, just ju- this is just like in the back room people saying things to their friends that you know, that they just say. I think it pops up periodically and it will continue to. And it's for all the reasons John said, I don't think it has any sort of widespread appeal, honestly. I think it's like a pretty narrow casting way to talk about President Obama, you know, to question his patriotism, to this whole idea of, you know, him as the other, this this sort of racist slash xenophobic way of thinking about the president. I mean, I just don't think that's like a lot of people, but I think it continues to recur periodically among some narrow thread. And I I guess saying that you're disappointed in Rudy Giuliani is sort of like a silly thing to say, but I do find it disappointing that Giuliani would feed into that. But you might also, we just should remember that when John McCain, I think it was we were in Appleton, Wisconsin, in the 2008 campaign, the there was a woman, I think it was, I was there, so I'm now like conflating what may in fact. But there, anyway, th- th- there was somebody who yelled out that I think Obama was a terrorist. Yeah, yeah. And McCain stopped the rally, which was a pretty heated and crazy rally in this gymnasium, and said like, no, no, no. He loves his country. We disagree with him. But we're not. he like stopped the music and stood up for some sense of restraint, which is what my point was about Giuliani, is that there's not – the incentives, particularly for somebody like Giuliani, are not to say, wait a minute here. Let's We can disagree with him. We can think he's making us less secure. But we don't have to go all the way to this right. weird territory. If Giuliani were an active right. candidate, this would be devastating for him. You couldn't get away with this as an active candidate. I think, I think if Scott Walker went around saying that kind of stuff, his candidacy would be not taken seriously. I think that's, I think I that's probably right. right. Let's quickly just talk about Jeb Bush. So did we learn anything substantive about Jeb Bush from his speech this week? John? No, uh, not really. I mean, I mean, it was a completely harmless speech. He he's basically wants everything. He wants strong alliances. He wants America to mean what it says. He wants to promote and support liberty, except in those instances where promoting liberty hurts America's natural national interests. He wants patience, but he also wants aggressiveness. He wants balance, but he also wants clear lines in the sand. I mean, he wants everything. He wants economy growing at 4% with more defense spending, entitlement fixes. It's just It was just a speech in which he wants everything to be wonderful. I think the, the most important thing politically for him 
that was both shrewd and useful for the speech in a purely political context is he got up and gave sort of a halting speech, but then performed in a question and answer, answer session for about 45 minutes with a certain sense of authority, with command of the issues, um, was able to correct his questioner when he was wrong about Tunisia, which, you know, was able to correctly name world leaders in, in easy fashion. As a viewer who is not paying a lot of close attention to a lot of things, if you saw Jeb Bush, you would think that he was a commanding person in charge of these ideas. They weren't coming to him for the first time. He didn't look like he was just up on roller skates for the first time. And you would, as many voters do, grant him a certain level of authority simply because he spoke confidently about this set of issues. And if you think that that's a kind of hokey idea, that was basically the idea that the Obama campaign in 2008 was was funded on. Here's a guy who's just a first-term senator, but he was in the original founding memo of that campaign told, you know, what if you pass each of these individual tests and show yourself to be confident and, and in command of your brief, people will grant you a certain level of strength and authority that they want their president to have. And so I think he cleared all those hurdles and he put his other opponents in a box, which is to say that Christie and Walker have had sort of stumbles when they have spoken about foreign policy. It's bromide filled. It's just less secure than what he's done. And so now Bush has surpassed them and he's also put some pressure on them. And I think putting pressure on the other candidates so they're reacting to you is always where you want to be rather than the opposite. Emily, Does it matter that he said there were 200,000 ISIS fighters no, in Syria instead matter. of 20,000? No. No. <laughs> okay. So in 2008, there was a little bit Obama benefited from his opposition to the war in Iraq and the sense of the Iraq as having been this terrible disaster. I mean, there were so many disasters in 2008 that Democrats took advantage of. In the 2016 race, do you see, I mean, we're going to have Hillary Clinton presumptively on the Democratic side, who was, a, who was the Secretary of State for President Obama. Do you see Republicans being able to use foreign policy in that election in a way that will help them. Historically, Americans don't care that much. They don't really vote on foreign policy. But is this going to be they a, tend to trust Republicans more than Democrats. Is this going to be a tool, right? But is, is Hillary's secretary of state and going to help or hurt her? Is there going to be a particular issue that people are going to, you know, stick on that's going to help one party or the other? I mean, I think the fact that we're in another moment in which the Middle East feels like it's deteriorating. No one's in charge in Afghanistan. You know, no one's clearly in charge in Syria, Iraq. Like these places that we put all these resources into are not in good shape. That seems to me that it does play into Republican hands and that it will be Hillary's challenge to neutralize the country's skepticism about whether Democrats should be trusted with more years, um, you know, in office given Obama's record. Fair or not, it just seems like that will be the stance coming in for a lot of voters. I think that's um, I think that's smart to the extent that she has to defend a complex set of foreign policy realities. She owns essentially the current situation, and also that's her nature. She's a you know diplomat, so she understands and articulates the complexity of things, and. Opposition candidates, but particularly Republican opposition candidates who don't have to be responsible for yet for what's actually happening, can just sort of say we, we need to be strong and clear and that that'll be the solution. And so they set themselves up 
against the status quo in a position that's favorable to them uh, politically. We should mention with Bush one last kind of thing is that there is this funny one thing that does undermine him and has the potential to in the end is his sort of fixation with being judged in relationship to his brother and father. I mean, of course, he's going to be judged in relationship to his brother and father, not just because of his name, but because when you're talking about foreign policy, those are the last two Republican administrations. And that proof of that, of course, is the fact that the 20 some odd advisors he had supporting him in giving this speech were all from the Bush era. And so it's a it's the kind of thing where voters could kind of say, oh, come on, like, stop. You're trying to pull one over us, on us by sort of running so far away from your brother and father. So I think that's just something to watch. I think he took care of it fine in this speech, though. All right. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are uh, questioning the love that President Obama has for America, John Dickerson, what will you be uh, guzzling and talking about? As you question that love. I have two pieces of um, interesting to me self-help um, like items that I came across this week. One is that in trying to improve your memory, one of the suggestions in an article I read was to avoid doorways. A study Wait, at the university. Excuse me? Yes, what? exactly. Some, you're not going to walk through doorways? Right. So if you're. to improve your memory? Here's why. You know, have you ever left a room to like go do something and you find yourself in the new room and you're like, what the hell did I mean to do? And then you Constantly. walk back and then you walk back into the original room and you're like, oh, right. I I was going to, you know, get my Nutella on toast. So a study at the University of Notre Dame revealed something what's called the doorway effect, which means simply walking through a doorway causes you to forget. What they believe is that memories have a kind of shelf life, and that shelf life is determined by your environment. When you walk through the door, you're presented with new thoughts, and so those new thoughts push away the old memories, and also your body doesn't think you need them anymore because you're in a new environment. And so... It's looking out for like new memories and new things you need to know for that new environment. But That's then when hunter gatherers never forget anything. Right. Those guys so like wait, they, what do you do? You have to like before still. you cross the threshold, think to myself like, okay, my keys are over there. Yeah, Go you self. Do. Well, just think okay. like I need to prepare. Live in a to, loft. I need to hold on to whatever it was I want to hold on to before I go through this door of forgetfulness. And my other one is that in a piece I was reading about um, about the benefits of writing just for yourself in journaling. And they found that people, when they were asked to um, remember when they met their loved one or spouse or whatever, that it f- that recounting the actual memory of the event itself was not happy-making. In fact, it made people depressed because their memory of that person is so much richer than the specific moment, unless it was like a moment when the clouds parted. And But if you asked somebody to recount in writing what it would have been like if the moment they met didn't happen, that it unlocks all of this, like, amazing creativity and warm feelings about that relationship. So when you're just in your quiet Uh moment of contemplation, think about what would have happened at the time you met if, you know, five seconds earlier your spouse had turned left and you had turned right and that meeting had never happened, what the rest of that day Mm -hmm. would have been like and, and then the following years. I would Can have I just say that my wreck. husband does not remember the moment in which I know that we met? How bad is that? I mean, that is bad. He's he just doesn't sorrow. remember it. Yes, well, some of us <clears throat> repress our <laughs> deepest pain. Hannah and, I, <laughs> Hannah and I have like such a meet cute that it just brings me happy. All it makes me happy all the time. Yeah, well, it that's great. You had one of the ours was good too, but I but I found this working on me. Uh, I guess also because you're so familiar with the underlying story that it 
that its ability to constantly provide. Unless you're Mr. Emily Bazelon. Yeah, unless, right. Well, for us, it's, yeah. we've turned it into a joke, of course. Right. Yeah, no, the. Do you keep adding it, details? You should keep adding details. No, it was like a brief moment of standing on a street corner with a bunch of people thinking about going to a movie during college. And I know that we were both there, and Paul, like, absolutely doesn't remember it happening. Do you remember Boy, seeing him? Boy, that does sound romantic. And thinking. <laughs> it's, it wasn't. What did Do you remember seeing him and thinking. That, yes, wow, I that, do remember taking so note. And, right, and he did not take note of me in the slightest, clearly. Mm. So it goes. So it goes. My chatter is about a... Uh, oh, wait, no. Emily hasn't had her chatter. Did Emily? I, I, no, I walked, no? <laughs> I, I walked through a doorway. <laughs> I walked through a doorway and then came back in. Yeah. You can go first, though. Anyway, that's, that is how powerful the, uh, the recollection of his meeting with Hannah is. I, I usually Emily that's does the first nice. chatter. And so that, you, that he just was completely brainlocked by uh, the <laughs> recollection of his meeting his sweetheart. Uh, all right, I'll do my chatter. Sure, why not? So, and then you do yours, Emily. Um, my chatter is okay. about a... Uh, I'm reading a fantastic book, which I have to recommend to everybody. I just was in a bookstore and just nudging around and saw a book that was being compared to Game of Thrones and Tolkien and uh, various other things. I thought, I got to read that book. It's called Hild, H-I-L-D. It's by a woman named Nicola Griffith. She's a British writer. And it's a the story of a real-life person, Hildegard, I believe, who was a 7th century British royalty saint warrior and it's about her growing up in this just post-roman britain navigating the royal court and it's very much like actually the book it's most like is wolf hall it's it the narration is strange it takes place in this environment you it takes a while to get oriented it's very confusing a lot of the time it's a beautiful book it's super interesting strange beautiful i cannot recommend it highly enough hild that sounds so great would kids like that book or not really more no it's a little it's a it's it's not that kids wouldn't like it it's just like it's pretty complicated it's pretty like it's wolf hard hall. to follow yeah i found wolf hall was beyond my mental capacity without a re- sitting down to this read is it actually harder to, harder to read i get yeah. lost i can't remember it there's one it, it's a book that would be massively improved had they just had listed all the names of the characters and who they are because you're constantly like who is that who is oirik you know what is it you have to find that list yeah. online maybe alas poor oirik i knew him I well. him. <laughs> emily what's your chatter my chatter is recommending a new podcast. The New York Times Magazine just launched – They re, we, we they um, reimagined the ethicist column as three ethicists. They are Amy Bloom, a novelist who I think is wonderful, Jack Schaefer, our amazing former colleague, and Kenji Yoshino, who is a law professor at NYU and it's also like the fabulous. It's like podcast. Did you, yeah, are you I really responsible like, for all three of them? <laughs> I I really am so excited about this one, and um and maybe this she is my tiny the shred of yeah, credit she for did. the reload. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I think it will be great. I haven't actually listened to it yet, but Jacob Weisberg um of Slate was recommending it to me last night, and the column, the ethicist column in the magazine, will still exist. It will be a kind of excerpted, condensed version of this podcast conversation the three of them will have, and I bet it's going to be delightful. That's awesome. And it exists. You can download it on iTunes. It's also part of the Slate. I think Slate is producing it. Right. And Slate is producing it. I mean, this is like what could make me happier. I have to recommend this. And it really just sounds terrific. All right. Our intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. Joel Meyer is our managing producer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. Show page, slate.com slash Gabfest. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash Gabfest. And our Twitter feed is at SlateGabfest. And our email address is gabfest at slate.com. You can subscribe in iTunes. Search for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store. 
for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Also, I think, you know what? One thing. We're, we're probably about to announce. Uh, we're we're going to have an, a live show coming up probably in April in New York. So mark your calendar. All of April. Block it off. Investors like you have a problem. Today, most portfolios only include stocks and bonds. While it's currently performing, it's a strategy that Goldman Sachs predicted in 2023 to underperform for the next decade. Luckily, our sponsor, Masterworks Advisors, focuses on a non-traditional alternative asset, helping over 15,000 investors diversify a portion of their overall portfolios with blue-chip post-war contemporary art. Over 60% of wealth managers surveyed by Deloitte have already integrated art into their wealth management offering. And by signing up at masterworks.com slash advisors with code free, you can talk to a registered investment advisor representative who deals exclusively with this alternative asset class. So schedule a free same-day advisory call with Masterworks Advisors just by going to masterworks.com slash advisors and using promo code free. That's masterworks.com slash advisors promo code free. This advertisement relates to the provision of advisory services by Masterworks Advisors LLC and is not intended to offer or solicit investment in any securities and is not investment advice. Masterworks Advisors is affiliated with Masterworks. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.